The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, we've got just two more weeks in Romans um, after today, and then we're going to begin a summer series in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. But as, Paul, as Paul's letter to the Romans has been winding down, one of the major themes that we've seen is unity. Uh, in chapter 14, we looked at the what of unity. In, in the first 13 verses of chapter 15, we looked at the why of unity. And the theme of unity is still at play here all the way to the end of Romans 15. Now listen, in, in our world today, someone who knows something about unity is the University of Minnesota football coach, P.J. Fleck. All right, Fleck has become kind of famous in the sporting world for this mantra that he has, row the boat. Anybody heard row the boat? Row the boat, right? Um, Now, row the boat means a lot of things if you listen to Fleck talk about it, but one element of it is unity. If you think about a boat and multiple people rowing, not, not paddling, but rowing, right? What is needed is everyone rowing in sync, everyone doing their part, everyone rowing in the same direction. And so Fleck has instilled this mantra of unity into his program, row the boat. Well, in the second half of Romans 15, Paul is actually saying something very similar to the mix of Jewish and Gentile Christians there in Rome. Row the boat. Like everyone in in gospel sync, okay? Everyone on the same gospel page, Everyone doing their gospel part, rowing in the same gospel direction. See, last week we talked about how the Bible is is never merely after unity for unity's sake, right? We saw Paul talk about earlier in chapter 15 about pursuing unity because of the example of Christ and for the glory of God and because of the, the great plan of salvation that he has this week in this text then he elaborates further on that last point to tell us and in some ways to show us that gospel unity is vital to gospel mission because it produces gospel partnership to the glory of God but it all depends on prayer row the boat Paul says and pray right Let's look together at Romans 15, beginning in verse 14. It's a strange passage. It sounds like Paul's just talking about his travel plans, but there's, there's so much more here than that. Or we see the, the thread of gospel unity carried over and braided into gospel mission and gospel partnership and gospel prayer. Look, look with me at Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Look, Paul is satisfied about the Roman Christians. He's not filled with with angst or a huge concern about them like he was with the Corinthians, for example. He trusts them with the gospel, knowing that they are filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But then he adds, hey, I've also come boldly at you on some points. And we'd probably agree if we reflect back over the book of Romans. 
Paul makes some really bold points in this letter, and he makes them really boldly, doesn't he? He's written boldly about sin and how we're all sinful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, everywhere, all Jews, all Greeks, everyone in the world, everyone in this room are sinful. Paul's written boldly about that. He's also written boldly about salvation and how none of us can take care of this sin problem on our own. We need Jesus, all of us, every single one of us, every Jew, every Greek, everyone in the world, everyone in this room. We need Jesus. We need him to be our propitiation. That word means wrath bearer. He's written boldly about that. We need Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He wrote boldly about how no one is saved by their works, their good deeds, their church attendance. They're keeping all the rules. We're not saved by that. No one in the world ever has been. No one in this room ever will be. No, what we need is to trust in Jesus. What we need to know is that while we were still weak, God sent Jesus for us. While we were still sinners, he sent Jesus for us. We don't get ourselves cleaned up and presentable to God. We are counted right before God, justified is one of Paul's favorite theological words, only by the blood of Jesus. And trusting in him by faith. This is the gospel. Paul has proclaimed it boldly in this letter. It's not necessarily new information to the Romans. He says he's written boldly to them by way of reminder. Do you see that? He's reminding them of the gospel and probably expanding upon their understanding of how it works out in their lives. He's reminding them that anyone can get in on it. It's the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes, Jew and Greek. He's written boldly then about how when we trust in Jesus, it doesn't, it doesn't matter about our, our pedigree. It doesn't matter about our past, our, our parents, or our upbringing. When we trust in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for us, and there never will be. Paul wrote pretty boldly about that. Jesus really took care of it all on the cross. We're united to him, united him in his death, united to him in his resurrection. We've been given new life with him, and nothing's ever going to separate us from him, ever. That's bold. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Paul's written boldly about it, and he has written boldly about how it is for Jews and Gentiles, uniting all together under the blood and the love and the rule of Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, in, in, in a way, at this point in the letter, we, we could even say that one of the reasons that Paul has written so boldly about the gospel is to get it clear to the Roman Christians that the gospel unites. It welcomes into fellowship those who would not otherwise fellowship. Gospel unity. He says, I, Paul, a Jew, have been made an apostle to the Gentiles. I'm a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul considers his missionary work as a priestly ministry. He's offering up, he is, as priest, he's offering up the Gentile converts as a living sacrifice to God. Listen to how John Stott summarizes this. He says, although Gentiles were rigorously excluded from the temple in Jerusalem, when you think about the Old Testament and God's Old Testament people, although the Gentiles were rigorously excluded from the temple in Jerusalem, 
and were on no account permitted to share in the offering of its sacrifices. Now, now, through the gospel, they themselves become a holy and acceptable offering to God. Welcome in is the message to the Gentiles. Welcome in to the boat. And now, let's row. Let's row. I've already said that Paul doesn't just exhort us to unity for the sake of unity. No, what we're to be learning here as we approach the end of Romans is that gospel unity is vital to gospel mission. The message isn't just get in the boat. The message is row the boat. Now let's pause here and just apply this to ourselves for a minute before we go any further. When we talk about unity in the church, this church, we're not just all trying to get along better, as good as that is and as important as that is even, but God wants us to be united despite our differences of opinions on various tertiary issues. That's what we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. He wants us to be united despite those things because he wants us to be on mission. Gospel unity is vital to gospel mission. In fact, if we're not that interested in gospel mission, we won't be that interested in gospel unity. But because we're interested in gospel mission, we must be interested in gospel unity. Gospel unity is vital to gospel mission. And Paul tells us of his gospel mission here in the text, beginning in verse 17. He says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. See, as an apostle to the Gentiles, this is what Paul has been up to. Gospel mission. He's been, he's been getting after it. You know, he, and, and he's proud of the work, not because he's proud of himself. No, he's giving glory to God for what Christ has accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles to, interesting word, obedience. If that sounds a little bit familiar, it's because you've read the book of Romans before, right? It harkens all the way back to the beginning of his letter. Turn back to Romans chapter 1 in your copy of, of God's word for a minute, if you would. I want you to see this. Um, we're getting some bookendy stuff here, okay? Paul is saying in Romans 15 what he said already in Romans chapter 1, indicating to us the continuity of the message throughout Romans, relating not just to the gospel, but getting the gospel straight so that we get gospel ministry straight, gospel mission straight, and therefore pursue Gospel partnerships and mission together. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we've received grace, and he's speaking of himself now, and apostleship 
to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I mean, <laughs> wow. If, if we, I'm looking back, we can see so much of the letter to the Romans rolled up into that intro, can't we? And at the center of it, it's the same thing he says in Romans 15, verse 18, is the obedience of faith. Lives that have been transformed by the gospel. New desires placed in us. New godly desires made possible by a new heart given to us by Jesus when we trusted in Him for salvation. New desires to glorify God. And a new power called the Holy Spirit operating in us now, empowering us to live for Him, to walk in obedience of faith, including living on mission for him. That's what Paul has been up to. That's what he's been after. And now he says, back in chapter 15, verse 19, I've fulfilled my ministry. I've fulfilled it. I've I've spread the gospel and planted churches from Jerusalem all the way around in an ark, most likely is what he means, to Illyricum. That's like modern-day Albania, which is just about as close to Rome as you can get without crossing the Adriatic Sea. His work, he says, was accompanied by the power of signs and wonders. We read about that in the book of Acts, don't we? This is the mission, Paul says, spreading the gospel and planting churches. That's why we're so committed to church planting around here at Two Pillars. And we didn't just make that up. We didn't just decide one time that that was going to be like a good thing to, to, to do. No, we're committed to the work of church planting because God is committed to the work of church planting seeing the gospel continue to spread and churches continue to be planted. That's how we came to be in existence. We're a church plant. 13 years old now, but very much a church plant. And the goal was never to plant a church and then live happily ever after. No, we're about planting more churches. More churches. Paul was too. Look what he says in verse 20. Even though he said he had fulfilled his ministry in planting churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum, he's not done yet. Verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition. He doesn't say I made it my ambition. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, must I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Paul has a holy ambition to go even further. He's talking about the pioneering work of a missionary, spreading the gospel, planting churches, to take the gospel on mission to those who have still not heard of Jesus, to reach even more people with this gospel. You know, if, we, if we look at a map and we have Jerusalem, where it all kind of started, right? And Illyricum, Circled up there for you, I think. Paul's covered all this ground. It's quite a bit of ground for one guy, you know? It's quite a bit of ground. In verse 23, he says there's no more room for work in these regions. Not meaning that he's personally shared the gospel with every single person in this whole region and visited every single town. He hasn't personally saturated the region, but he's spread the gospel far and wide here. He's planted churches in in key cities like Antioch and Derby and Iconium and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus. And now, 
He expects the gospel to do what the gospel does. Change lives. Bring about the obedience of faith and thereby compel believers in all these areas to live on mission, continuing the mission. Do you guys remember the the COVID maps early on in the pandemic? Remember the COVID maps? I think we have one up here. We can put it on the screen. There it is. You're like, like... I remember watching, this, they called it a dashboard. This one's from Johns Hopkins um, University. I remember when they came out, I was mesmerized by this thing, right? It was like something from a movie or, or, or something like that. Well, something like this is what Paul has in mind when he thinks about mission. He'd plant a church and expect it to spread, to, to radiate outward, become self-reproducing even, spreading and saturating. He says in verse 23, he's done that all throughout the region, but he isn't done yet. He's never been to Rome, but he longs to. He's wanted to go, but he hasn't, he's felt constrained up until this point to stay on mission where God has him. Now that work is done, and he has a holy ambition for more. In fact, if we look at verses 23 and 24, we realize not only does Paul want to get to Rome, He wants to go beyond Rome and make it to Spain, perhaps marking the ends of the earth as they knew it back then. Verse 23 says, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. What we see here is that Paul isn't done yet. Even though he is done So much work for God. He has so much to be proud of. Again, not proud of himself, but the work that God has done through him. He's not tired of it. Now, I'm sure he's tired by it. Brother was probably tired. But there's a difference in being tired by the mission and being tired of the mission. I'm sure Paul was tired by the mission. Paul is not tired of the mission. There's more. He's compelled by the gospel to gospel mission. Or as the old Henry Skugel said in his excellent little book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, the person who has given himself entirely to God will never think that he has done too much for him. Paul could say that. There's more. Paul's not done yet. And neither are we. As we apply this to ourselves, we're to ask if this line of Skoogles describes us. We can apply that individually, right? But today, I actually want us to apply it corporately. We're not done yet. Like we, we've given ourselves, I, I hope, like in our best moments, we would say we've given ourselves entirely to God and should never think that we've done too much for Him. Sure, we've planted this church. We can even call it established now. And the gospel is saturating Its rating is going out as as we make and mature and unleash missionary disciples who live with gospel faithfulness in our everyday, ordinary lives that doesn't look all that spectacular, does it? But it's, it's still happening with your neighbors, with your friends, your coworkers, your family. It's radiating out. And also we support church plants from Hastings to South Asia, but we're not done yet. You know, when we raised all that money to buy this church and, and, and this building and to, to do the renovations on it, included in that was $50,000 for church planting residency funds. You remember this? 
The idea was to have some funds. We raised that, by the way. The idea was to have some, some funds that could be used to supplement the income of a couple of church planting residents, having no one specifically in mind or lined up, but preparing for that in the future because we're not done. We want to plant more churches. It's part of our mission. Whether that's here in Lincoln or having a resident that is sent out across the country to do it somewhere else, we're committed to that. Little old two pillars. We're committed to that. We have a holy ambition to keep on with that. And because we're passionate about that, we must also continue to be passionate about gospel unity. Gospel unity is vital to gospel mission. And it's vital to gospel mission because it produces, third point now, gospel partnership. Gospel partnership is essential to gospel mission. There's, there's no Lone Ranger Christians or Lone Ranger churches. We're part of a family. But locally and in its smallest form, that's the local church. But then more broadly, we're part of God's family. United together with all of his people across his churches. And we're to work to partner together for the sake of mission, for the glory of God. Look at verse 23 again. It says, but now, since I no longer have any room for work, and since I no longer have, uh, I'm sorry, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and so I, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. This is where we see that Paul wasn't wanting to go to Rome, you know, for his own sake. Get a little. Christian Italian vacation in, little pasta and vino, you know, that's, that's not what he was after. That's not what he was up to. He, he also wasn't just going to, for the sake of the Romans, though that's part of it. He said back in chapter one that he longed to see them, that he might impart some spiritual gift to them and strengthen them and be mutually encouraged by them. But here he reveals his broader ambition to get to Spain. And he wants their help. He wants their partnership. Probably financial support, sure, but also material support and prayer support. He needs Rome to be a staging ground for mission to Spain. He needs fellow workers to go along with him from Rome. He needs them to be strong and healthy so that they can be a part of the mission to the ends of the earth. You begin to see the braid you begin to see why Paul has spent so much time in his letter clarifying the gospel and talking about unity? It's because we have to have the gospel straight to get gospel unity straight. And gospel unity is essential, it's vital to gospel mission because it produces gospel partnership to the glory of God. Paul wants the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome to be united, strong together, to row the boat. So that the boat that he's been rowing, all throughout Jerusalem to Illyricum, can grow even larger, grow even stronger. Everyone in gospel sink. Everyone on the same gospel page. Everyone doing their gospel part. Everyone rowing in the same gospel direction from Rome to the ends of the earth. 
This is why unity matters. Not so we don't bicker with one another and annoy each other. Not so we don't sweat the small stuff and get into arguments and quarreling. But so we can partner together for the sake of the mission to the glory of God. Have you ever wondered why Paul um, includes his travel plans here at the Romans of 15, at the end of Romans 15? Was he just like trying to make some notes and oops, they got stuck in the letter and you know, he didn't want to forget his itinerary and somehow it slipped in here. I mean, it's weird. It's, it's, almost, it's like TMI, really. Why does he say all this stuff? Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Kind of an odd thing to say, actually. Like, hey, by the way, I'm just going to stop by a little bit while I'm going somewhere else. Um, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, just so you know, bringing aid to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia. I've been pleased to make some contribution for the poor there among the saints in Jerusalem. For they're pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be a service to them in material blessings. And when, therefore, I've completed this, you know, when I get around, when I get all this other stuff done, all right, and I've delivered that to them, what's been collected, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave for Spain by way of you, right? <laughs> Paul, we believe, wrote this letter to the Romans from Corinth, which is, if you had a map, it's actually fairly close to Rome. Why go all the way back to Jerusalem, about 800 miles in the wrong direction? And then back to Rome from Jerusalem. Okay, it's like 1,600 miles at least of unnecessary travel. If he's just trying to get to Rome, send the money with somebody else, go back to Jerusalem. Why is Paul messing with all this stuff? Well, the reason he gives for doing all this has to do with this offering that's being taken up amongst Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia. For the impoverished Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. The aid, he calls it in verse 25. Now think about that. What better showing of unity is there than that? In fact, the word in verse 26 for contribution is actually the Greek word koinonia, which is usually used in the New Testament to describe fellowship. In other words, all this business of collecting money amongst the Gentile churches to be sent to the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem is a tangible expression of fellowship. Paul is telling the Romans that what he's longing for amongst them, unity in the church in Rome, is the same thing he's been laboring for across his entire mission field. Unity. This collection was about way more than a charity project. It was designed also to bring into deeper fellowship, deeper unity, Gentile and Jewish Christians across the entire region where the gospel had spread. Listen to how one theologian has captured the significance of this. He says, for Gentiles to give money for Jewish Christians was a sign that the Gentiles regarded them as members of the same family. For Jewish Christians to accept it would be a sign that they in turn accepted the Gentiles as a part of their family. 
You see what Paul's doing here? Do you see what he's laboring for here? It's about way more than feeding the poor saints back in Jerusalem. He wants all Christians everywhere to row the boat. Row the boat. He's laboring for gospel unity, which is vital for gospel mission because it produces gospel partnership to the glory of God. But it all depends on prayer. Remember last week, that was a point that we made last week too with respect to the unity within the Roman church. Verse 5 from Romans 15. Remember how Paul said, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify God. Remember we said, God has to do it. He's the one who grants us to live in harmony with one another. Paul prayed for it. And so must we. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers, and your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. How brilliant is this? Paul is writing to the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome about their unity within the church there. And one of the ways that he goes about encouraging them towards unity is inviting for them to pray for gospel unity for the sake of gospel mission. He's taking their eyes off themselves and casting them onto the much broader work that God is doing all throughout the world. That's a way to pursue unity. And he asked them, the, the quarreling Roman Christians, to pray for unity amongst Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians everywhere. It's brilliant. He says, first, pray for me. Okay, Paul sees himself as an instrument to this work, as the apostle to the Gentiles. He certainly was. So he says, pray for me, that I'd be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Okay, Paul knows what he's going back to. He's been there before. He's been stoned, drug out of town, and left to die by the Jews preaching Jesus to the Gentiles. So he says, pray for me. Pray for my safety. Strive together with me in praying this way. Secondly, he asked them to pray that for the saints in Jerusalem, largely Jewish Christians, that they would accept this aid that he's been working so hard to gather from the Gentile churches. Because that wasn't a given. Like you could picture Paul showing up and saying, hey, here's this great offering from the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians saying, ew. Right? Paul's praying for it. He's striving. and He's working up a prayer sweat over this, over all this work, this whole project. He's asking God to grant the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to live in such harmony, such fellowship, such unity with Gentile Christians spread abroad that they would welcome the gift, receive the gift, that it would be acceptable to them and accepted by them as a wondrous showing of the glory of God uniting Jews and Gentiles under the banner of Christ throughout the world. That would give me joy, Paul says in verse 32. 
That'd be, that, that would bring me real joy, he says. And I'd be able to come to you, be refreshed by your company, your unity too, Romans. It's going to be wondrously mutually encouraging. Strive together with me, Paul says, in praying this way. Join me on mission, tending through prayer, the gospel unity of God's people. Now listen, here's what we learn here. The gospel unites us. And gospel unity is vital to gospel mission because it produces gospel partnerships. But also, one of the ways we tend our gospel unity is by remaining on gospel mission together. It works both ways. Getting our eyes off of ourselves from time to time and focusing on what God is doing through the rest of His kingdom. The gospel unites and compels us to mission and living on mission, rowing the boat, tends our gospel unity. And it all depends on prayer. So here's how I want to close today, just a couple more minutes. I want to set before you two ways to be praying for us as a church as it relates to gospel mission and gospel partnerships. Um, the first is church planting. I mentioned a little bit ago the church, residency, uh, church planting residency funds that, that we've raised. I want you to be praying for a church planting resident. It's someone who can embed here with us so we can partner together with, invest in, help, and send out to plant another church. It's not going to happen without our prayer. Prayer is essential. It depends on prayer. Okay, and this isn't totally in vague abstracts. I met with a young man a few weeks ago who was exploring this, exploring this opportunity. It's too early to give any details. He's actually related to somebody in our body, but he's checking it out. He's considering, he's praying about it, right? It may very well not work out, but it very may well work out, and so we want to pray for it. And I'm excited about it because, it's, believe it or not, it's not every day or every decade that somebody approaches me and says, hey, I think God might be calling me to plant a church. Like, normal people don't do that, you know? It just doesn't happen very often, all right? And so we want to pray for this. Would you be praying that God would make that path clear? That he might stir this young man's heart to, and his wife's heart to, to go for it. And that we'd get to be a part of that. Pray that God would be working here. He might be pleased to work through us. Not so that we can grow prideful and pat ourselves on the Acts 29 back or something weird like that. But that we'd be proud of what Christ is accomplishing through us and get to experience the joy of participating in his mission together. Secondly, for a number of years, we've been a part of the Omaha chapter of the Gospel Coalition. I've served on that board, uh, the board of that organization, and it's been great. Some of you have been to some of the TGC events that, that we've done up at Coram Deo. We hosted one even in this room a few years back. Um, as, as a few Lincoln pastors and myself have chatted, we really feel like God is doing something unique in our city, just in the city right now. Um, and uh, it, it's been brewing for a little while. There's a, a few pastors older than me who've been laboring for a work of unity across churches in our city for over 30 years. And we're currently in the works of trying to shift the center of TGC Omaha to, to Lincoln, seeking to expand and cultivate a movement of, of unity amongst churches here, radiating out from Lincoln into the surrounding areas, what we think might be called TGC Nebraska. This would be churches like-minded in gospel theology and, and the authority of God's word, and yet not dividing over secondary issues like the mode of baptism. 
partnering together, building gospel unity, building gospel partnerships for gospel mission to the glory of God. That's exciting. But it all depends on prayer. It's not a given that that's going to happen, so we're wading through some of the details, but would you, would you pray for that? Would you pray for me as I give a little bit of time to that? Would you pray for Dustin Rogers from Heritage Bible Church and Stu Kearns from Zion PCA and Tom Rempel, formerly from, from Faith Bible Church, as we sort of put our heads together? We've, we've met, we've prayed through that, we think God's doing something there, but there's still some steps. And so would you pray um, to that end for a work of gospel unity, which we know to be vital for gospel mission? They would produce gospel partnerships for the glory of God. Let's begin praying that way now. Father, um, as we think about the end of Romans, we're not actually certain whether Paul ever made it to Spain. Seems unlikely, actually. I'm not told in the scriptures that he did, and it's unclear in consistent reports outside of scripture. We know from reading Acts that he did make it to Rome. Certainly not in the way that he thought he would. Arrested, imprisoned, escorted there, shipwrecked. This is not what he expected. And Father, we're not certain whether we'll ever have a church planting resident or how that will shake out or, or what exactly you're up to with respect to unity across churches here in Lincoln. But still, we pray for it all. Like Paul. Would you give us and strengthen in us a holy ambition for your mission? Use us, Lord, for your glory. Unite us by your gospel for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.